the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of KDOW or its management owners or advertisers and should not be construed as legal tax or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. I started thinking about a second home years ago in my early 30s when I visited Hawaii. And I was like, this would be great to have a home here. And then you start thinking about it. You're like, it would be a nightmare to have a home in Hawaii because you want to go, but it's a five-hour flight. It's not a cheap flight. And then you get a little island crazy after a week anyway. Tired of the spam. Spam. So I got a place in Truckee. And I was boiling it down between Truckee and Tahoe. And in my 20s, I came to the Bay Area. I remember going to Tahoe during the winter with a girlfriend. And it was intoxicating. She was beautiful. The weather was beautiful. The snow was beautiful. The passion was there. So I think in my head, I was like, I want to own a place in Tahoe. But then I started factoring in when looking at a place, you and I, uh, we did a lot of research. So and uh, I got a realtor. We'll talk about him a little bit later. Tahoe wasn't right for me. I kind of learned because I want it Tahoe, but not necessarily my family. Um, kids want pools. Kids want trails. Kids want snow. Kids want hot tubs. They don't really care about the view of a lake when it's snowing. And for some reason, I'm now, I just figured it out. I'm that old poop. I'm Henry Fonda on Golden Pond. I want to live on a pond. I want to live on a lake. I want to see it snow on a lake. But that's me now. (laughs) So a good realtor was able to say, you know, what are you looking for? And uh, went through that whole process of Truckee over Tahoe. And now I I hate it because I'm a Truckee person. I'm one of those people that everyone in Tahoe hates because they come up from San Francisco and they get a place. And second homes are, are abundant. I was recently there and... I was there on a Thursday and Friday, and I don't think anyone was home. You drive by 100 homes, there's like three three cars. So it's kind of nice, though. Well, you got through the hardest part, and that is you actually made the decision to do it. Yeah. Uh, most people, uh, there's a lot of people just sitting on the sidelines thinking about that. Oh, we go to Hawaii, we go to Cabo, we go to Vegas, or wherever they go. And they kind of go, why are we spending money on this vacation when we could, you know, should we get a timeshare, or should we get a... A uh, second home slash vacation home, uh, and a lot of people, they just sit there and they don't they don't actually make the decision. They de- they never run the numbers, or they don't have the money, or they have can't figure out how it works, or they can't all collaborate. And I think you you did the you did all of that leading up to the whole searching. The searching part was easy, right? When you, not when you really. think about it, not really. Because you, you go to like Kings Beach, and like the first time I ever went to Tahoe, I went stayed in Kings Beach, so it was burned in my head like this is fun and sexy. Yeah, but other than the fact that of uh, eliminating what's, what did you want a beach vacation home? Did you want something in the mountains? Did you right you absolutely know, something on, just on the hillside but starts, or in a pond? But the experience of figuring out which community, like Incline, I think it's overrated. Yeah, you know your the realtor Wade, he helped a lot. Um, he asked the right questions. You you responded back with the right answers. Um, you involved the family, and you ended up with the right property. I mean, what you do with that afterwards is 
it's completely up to you. You can actually turn that into a rental if you wanted, or a vacation rental, or you can just use it, personalize it, and use it on your own. Um, and I think that's the great thing about your position. Not everybody can be in that position where they go, I, I might actually need some income from this property for it to work. I, I don't want to spend 30000 or $40,000 a year to own this property and only use it five times a year. Let me rent it out for the remainder of that time. And, sure. Um, oh, hefty fees, though. 25 30% for property management fees for vacation, vacation rentals. Um, a lot of people go towards Airbnb or they use VRBO. Um, and that becomes another job. So you really kind of have to budget that in there. And I think you were fortunate that you didn't have you don't have to worry about it in the first year, but you might start thinking about it later as you figure out how your schedule works at the property. Something like that. Um, but again, it was a process. And it's funny because obviously I've been saying for years, when I turn 50, I'm going to get a Tesla. And then I just saw too many Teslas on the road. And I saw too many guys wearing white pants driving Teslas. And they're all... And that's the best way of saying that without getting into trouble or going to talk to the manager today. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't a midlife crisis. I've actually figured something out, which is kind of crazy. You know, I, I talk openly that my dad was kind of an alcoholic and not there for me and not supportive. But he was, I mean, I had clothes and I had things that I needed. So I, I can't really complain. I wasn't battered. Uh, I wasn't fried. I was battered, but never fried. Um I had 11 essential spices and herbs. The special kernels mixture. My dad was a colonel. Um, it's neither here nor there. So I remembered, like, even when I went on vacations as a kid to Myrtle Beach or to Nags Head or wherever, my dad was always a, just a jerk. So I think it wasn't a midlife crisis. I think it was just me going back to my childhood saying, I want to give my family a nice place to go that they don't have a jerk dad. Is that kind of odd that you come to these realizations that like 45 years after the fact, you're like, I want to get a vacation home for my kids because I didn't have the happy vacation home. So that's kind of odd. So, so anyway, you, you set me up with a guy named Wade because you know, a guy named Chad, um, not the Chad Burton, but a firefighter named Chad who basically, he just, he was, he's a smart business guy, mm-hmm. Chad. Um, he's made some pretty smart moves. And made moves, mm-hmm. which is, it's, which is the thing to say, but he still listens to the show and he still comes to seminars and, uh, what have you. Um, so he's, he does investing. He, he believes in other things other than just real estate. But as a firefighter, he, he has that unique situation where you live in the firehouse three or four days and then you go back to your apartment for three or four days. So he would Airbnb his place on, uh, in San Francisco while he was at the firehouse, which, it's pretty awesome, right? Yeah. And it makes money. Yeah. So he decided to, to up and move and he lives in Kings Beach now uh, or pretty close to Kings Beach uh, and comes back to San Francisco to be a firefighter um, and then drives back home to be with his wife and then drives back to San Francisco to be a firefighter. So he's figured it out for himself and uh, it's all about figuring it out for you, right? So it is. Like I said, that's the hardest part to see how it works for you. Um, and that's the saying in real estate, you know, you have to first get through that first hump of deciding to make that, uh, purchase. So you can find Tony Mendez at com. He helped me through the process. He can help you through the process. If you want to get a second home, he knows the right people. 
He knows the right people to meet, and he can help you with a loan in the process. It's not the easiest thing to get done, but it is there. You can find him at BayAreaLoanSource.com. Catch Rob Black and Rob Black and Your Money live on the Bay Area Airwaves. Weekday mornings from 7 to 9 on AM 1220 KDOW. And streaming live on the KDOW radio app or KDOW.biz. And don't forget the weeknight replay at 7. So I grew up in a world of Jason Voorhees. No, no, no. I grew up with a little Freddy Krueger. Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees. Who are these people? Come on, you know. Little Mike Myers. I was pre-torture movies. I was pre-Saw films. They never appealed to me. And when I got into Wall Street, and Friday the 13th met Wall Street, it was truly scary. 30 years ago today, children still talk about it. It was October 19, 1987. The Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 25% of its value in one day. Children, tell your children about Black Monday. It was a day where traders and investors lost one quarter their worth in a day. No one in living memory has seen anything like it. Never, ever. And it's only told about and talked about in whispers now. The postmortems conducted, trying to understand how the Dow managed to drop 508 points in one day. They couldn't figure it out. The so-called portfolio insurance, a quantitative tool which was designed to use futures to protect against market losses. Instead, it created a poisonous feedback loop. We had the solution to fix evil, and that solution was evil itself. We basically figured out a way to stop a market crash that created a market crash. Now the proliferation of computer-driven investing has created an illusion, as Doug Henning would say. It's an illusion. It's created a ton of risk. That can be measured and managed. And shifting into real voice, there's, you know, it was 30 years ago that we had Black Monday. And you look at the calendar this year and you see October. And October's got Black Monday in it. It was the third Monday of the month. It was kind of the dawn of, <clears throat> I, I'll say it right now, CNBC. It was kind of the dawn of, it opened the door for people like me. Where we started talking financial news is news. Because up until then, it was pretty boring and it, it took... You know, 67 years, well, 55 years, roughly, to kind of get us back into that mode set that Wall Street had really dark times and people would jump out windows. So as a financial person, working on the first floor always has advantages. There's never a day that kind of bad. So we've since heard of not just Black Monday, where we lost 25%. So imagine your portfolio is worth $1 million, and suddenly at the end of the day, it's worth 750000 That's a lot of money for people that they panicked. We've had something called the flash crash back in 2007, 2008, where the market dropped 7% in the middle of the afternoon. We had flash crash too back in 2015, and that lasted for a couple days overnight, kind of, it kind of went around the globe, and we saw you know, huge chasms of what we thought could happen versus what did happen between stocks and ETFs and the ETFs that own them. Um, Brazil once was battered. They weren't fried, but they were battered. The Brazil index once crashed 19% in 
in a single day. Can you imagine a whole market down 19 freaking franken percent in one day? Um, I can't give you a, a comparative. It would be like your house going down 19% in a day, right? Back in 2014, we had the Treasury Tantrum. And I love people who are prone to tantrums because they are damn entertaining to watch, especially if they do it in public. So Treasury Tantrums are kind of important where the 10-year Treasury went from basically 2.15% all the way down to 1.85% in a day. And you're like, whoa. And that was real. So there's an increasing amount of money in the stock markets worldwide and not just domestically. And it's all devoted to rules-based investing. Quantitative strategies now account for about $933 billion, which are just making decisions on mathematics. It's not on earnings. It's not on interest rates. It's just on mathematics. Now, in 2007, that number was about $499 billion. So more and more is going into calculator-driven decisions that don't really take into account anything other than short-term profits and short-term risk management. And that tends to snowball itself. And if you go way back in the 1980s, if you wanted to place a trade, you know, you picked up a phone and you called your broker and your broker would put you on hold. And then he'd ring up, he'd go, you'd call him up and you'd say, hey, Joe, um, I heard a hot tip to buy shares of this company called Digital Computer. And Joe's like, well, as a stockbroker, I should be hearing the hot tips, not my customers, but let me call my specialist. I'm going to put you on hold for just a second. So he'd call a specialist, and a specialist are these people who are, you know, uh, basically make creating bids and asks and uh, trying to figure out what a stock should be priced at. They're trying to match buyers and sellers. And that person in charge of basically running trade in, in any given stock, sometimes they'd manage up to seven, eight, nine stocks, and that trade would be executed. The process was slow, was cumbersome, it was inefficient. So to get that kind of panic, it took a lot of phone calls. Computer technology wasn't advanced then, but it did advance. The machines grew to rise, as Sarah Connell once predicted. Machines gradually took most of these steps out of the hands of humans, and we did it gleefully. Today, nearly every trade is handled by an algorithm of some sort. It's placed by a computer. It's executed by computers interacting with each other. So Black Monday can and will happen again. We will have a bad day. I always think of robots as blenders. I don't know why. Robot uh, but it, parade, robot parade. parade. That's they might be giants. So mistakes happen with the way humans interact with algorithms. For instance, in 1998, there was a group of quants at long-term capital management. They were led by a Nobel Prize winner, Robert Merton and Myron Scholes. Anyone named Myron, I never trust. And they caused a massive market sell-off when the hedge fund's highly leveraged trades based on quantitative models started to lose and, and basically meet unexpected market behavior. And they lost a ton of money in Russia because Russia defaulted on their debt. And that started just this massive snowballing because of leverage. Leverage is a bad thing on the way down. Leverage, when you own a home and you take money out of home to buy another home, and you take money out of it's great on the way up. But when it goes down, you go bankrupt. So, welcome to the 30th anniversary of Black, Black, Black Monday. It's not that scary, is it? It's all computer-driven. Until you actually go through one, that's when you start staining some underwear. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial money, invested in more. Find me online at robblackshow.com. Want the podcast with music? 
find the link to the other version of the podcast by going to Rob Black's Twitter. His handle is at Rob Black Show. Listen to Rob Black and Your Money weekday mornings, 7 to 9 on AM 1220 KDOW. Welcome back in. Rob Black and Your Money. I'm Rob Black, talking money, investing, and more. Joining me now, Patrick O'Hare, briefing.com. Always a favorite feature of the week. How are you, Mr. O'Hare? Hey, Rob. I'm doing well. Thanks. Good to be back with you. Good to be here, and uh, thanks for picking up the phone, so to speak. Um, stock market is always our focus, and uh, it's been an interesting year. We seem to do it and be doing a little bit of a yo-yo, but things are slowing down a bit. Where are we as we start to head towards the half point of the year, in your opinion? Um, you know, all in all, I'd say that the market is is doing okay. Um, you know, we obviously have had just such huge gains off those 2009 lows and, you know, had a nice year last year. And, uh, and obviously we had a great start to this year that was quickly unwound. Um, but at this juncture, you know, the S&P 500 is up a little more than 2% year-to-date on the, on the price index. And so when you account for dividends, I mean, your total return is probably close to, you know, 4% uh, through uh, not even the first half of the year, which is, which is not bad. Um, I think that you know, a lot of people have gotten uh, the expectations have gotten ahead of themselves, given the the nature of past returns here and this sense that the uh, you know this bull market you know won't face any headwinds. But you know, the fact of the matter is, this bull market is is starting to face headwinds, and I think that that has slowed some of its momentum and it has had uh, investors starting to um, you know question the the changing physiology of this bull market uh, such that they're no longer as willing to eagerly pay up for earnings as they did in the past. But um, but you don't have a down market right now. Uh, you just have a market that's generating some modest returns and uh, one that seems to be fairly range-bound here over the last several months. So what's going to be the breaking point? Is it going to be something we see coming? Will it be the interest rate creep? Will it be... A trade war, which I'm, I'm, I'm pessimistic on that one in large part uh, because I guess I'm sarcastic and thinking that all trade wars are just political wrangling to get in front of your people and say that you, you, you put the old U.S. to the test or you put Korea to the test or you put China to the test. I did my job. But what's going to be the thing that unwinds us? It's, it's tough to see at this point in time other than valuations. Yeah, well, I think the the ultimate spoiler uh, is going to be interest rates. Um, it tends to be the case, you know, uh, where you get uh, the Fed, you know, moving in a, in, a, in a hawkish manner such that, you know, interest rates rise to a point where you start seeing a slowdown in consumption and you start seeing a slowdown in loan demand and you start seeing, you know, banks get tighter with their lending standards and then, uh, you know, and then you're potentially, you know, experience a recession or certainly a slower period of economic growth that diminishes the pace of earnings growth. Um, you know, when when do you hit that ultimate inflection point? That is hard to say, but just in terms of your actual question, I think that you know, the answer itself is, is going to boil down to the path of interest rates. That will be the spoiler for the bull market. Um, and at this juncture, though, uh, you know, the bull market has been able to tolerate the increase in rates that we've seen so far, and um, you know, because you've seen them, uh, I think, as you alluded to in your question, they've kind of been creeping higher uh, as opposed to really rocketing higher. Um, and if you get a, a spike in interest rates, well, then uh, then you, I think you see a stock market that 
that becomes more troublesome. But uh, but with the creep higher in interest rates, uh, there's uh, a reasonable basis to validate that move as a reflection of of an improving economic environment and a reflection of the fact that you don't need monetary policy that's you know. At a, you know emergency provision levels, uh, you know the Fed has been taking back some of that uh, aggressive uh, easing that it implemented during the financial crisis, uh, and it sounds pretty resolute about its uh, ability to continue to raise interest rates here, as it sees uh, the economy evolving in a, in a favorable manner. And so the market's going to have to continue to contend with uh, the Fed raising rates, um, but it's going to have to also battle with this notion of will the Fed raise rates too much too soon and uh, and therefore choke off an economic recovery here and, and choke off the bull market. When our kids are in school, we go to work and we show them this is what dad does for a living. And we're moving into the summer months where the kids are out of school and we show them how cool dad is by taking them to the beach or something like that. And Wall Street seems to fall prey to lower volume because professionals are away from their desks, so to speak. Is there anything that you see coming in the summer that plays out like um, into the less volume, less trading? Do you, are, you, are you predicting anything for the summer compared to other summers? You know, a few weeks ago in the big picture column that I wrote, uh, you know, I wrote a piece that suggested that the, the stock market is kind of stuck in its own, you know, wrestling in its own cage match, you know, because it's okay. looking out ahead uh, through these summer months, the early summer months, uh, and uh, finding some reasons to, I guess, show a lack of conviction, if you will. Um, you know, one of those reasons was the understanding that you had the best uh, quarter of earnings growth in the first quarter uh, in uh, in roughly eight years, and yet the market didn't seem to respond all that aggressively to the very good earnings news. And so you had this question of, you know, if you can't rally on that type of earnings news, you know, what will you rally on? And so that's an, a question that I think is kind of held. Uh, back some of the buying conviction. You still have the overhang, notwithstanding some of the most recent headlines. You have the overhang still of, you know, tariff wars or threats of tariff wars that are going to be out there. You have the overhang of concerns about rising input costs and a tightening labor market fueling inflation pressures, possibly. You have the concern about there being uh, increased political rancor or political populism as you uh, start seeing the campaigning for the midterm election heats up, heating up. Um, and then, of course, you, know, you also have this, you know, this increased competition factor for stocks in the form of higher short-term uh, and risk-free interest rates uh, that are providing some some new degree of comfort level, I think, for investors who uh, don't necessarily want to contend with the volatility of the stock market and can see a you know short-term risk-free rate of return that's that's attractive in the treasury market. And so, so there's some things out there I think here that you know we'll kind of hold back the the stock market here in the in the in the summer months. And of course, you just have that seasonal factor as you allude to, where you know volumes tend to go down as as vacation schedules pick up. You and I are roughly the same age, I believe. When I got in this industry 20-plus years ago, I didn't give a two cents about bonds because I was young. I was thinking growth long-term. I got plenty of time ahead of me. Uh, tech stocks were doing great. Financials were doing great. The stock market was doing great. So bonds didn't make any sense. But as I'm getting older and pushing a little bit longer in the lifespan, 
um, and rates start creeping up, should I start paying more attention to bonds and interest rates and getting some income versus the stock market? Because I've always kind of seen that 10-year treasury as unattractive under 3.5%. It's been under 3.5% for a long time. What are your thoughts on um, getting older and caring a little bit more about interest rates? Yeah. Well, I I think uh, that really does boil down to time horizon and risk tolerance. And, you know, I'd point you to the remark made by Warren Buffett not that long ago, just a few weeks ago, I think, where, you know, he said if if he had the choice between buying the S&P 500 index or buying a 10-year U.S. Treasury or 30-year U.S. Treasury, you know, it would take him less than a nanosecond to buy the S&P 500 index, right, Uh, because he thinks that you know, because he thinks bonds are going to go down a lot, which he means, you know, you know, bond prices are going to go down a lot, and you know, and while yields yields will go up, uh, the the key, of course, is um, you know, do you have the, the patience to basically maintain that uh, investment to maturity, where you you know you won't lose principal, but uh, but I think also what Mr. Buffett is is arguing in favor of is that stocks have uh, far superior inflation adjusted rates of return than, than do treasuries. So you really have to be aware of what your risk tolerance is and your time horizon is, uh, you know, uh, as it relates to allocating significant portions of, of, of an investment portfolio, I think, to, to the fixed income market at this at this at these levels, which of course have been we've gotten to off of a what a thirty year bull market for treasuries. Um, so uh, so that's a factor to, to take account of, but they certainly provide some risk free peace of mind, obviously, uh, for a lot of investors. So they they have their value. You just need to know what your own time horizon and risk tolerances are uh, to to capitalize on that particular um, that particular value. Sounds good. There's a lot going on with choices on ETFs, index funds, mutual funds, and then you start getting individual stocks. And then we start learning millennials are pretty demanding when they shop and the future of McDonald's and the future of Starbucks all depends on the millennials. And there's a lot going on as a, a father. Is there any advice you've started to think about one day giving your kids or or am I barking up the wrong window? You, you'll let them figure it out when they figure it out. Yeah, no, you know, it, it, well, some things you do have to figure out on your own. But, you know, one of the things, you know, you can certainly advocate for, for younger kids these days uh, certainly is the importance of saving. Um, because uh, I know right now as a 46-year-old that if – if all these prognostications hold out when it comes time to collect, you know, Social Security at the, you know, age of 65 or what have you, um, right. my benefits are going to be reduced because there's not enough there to, to pay the full allotment that, you know, people are getting now. So so you do need to be more conscientious about saving these days because um, you just don't know what's going to be there <laughs> when the retirement uh, card gets played. You're always a great interviewer. Thanks so much, briefing.com's Patrick O'Hare. He starts today with page one. He talks about interest rates and inflation and what's moving the markets. He reads through the journal. He gives you ideas, thoughts, insights. He ends the week with a great column as well, the big picture. You can find out more about briefing at briefing.com. It's briefing.com and Patrick O'Hare talking the markets. Don't forget, there's another hour of today's show to listen to. Find it now at kdow.biz or on the KDOW radio app. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial money, investing, and more. McDonald's is doing what they can to stay relevant. You'd imagine that the Big Mac maker has kept 
kept that consistency for years and years and years and years, and we loved it. My parents were like, take Rob to McDonald's, get him a burger and fries, and he's all good. And then 20 years later, I start making babies, and I'm like, take the kid. No, don't. Fried food's no good. Fried food used to be okay. Fried food, no good. It's like the egg. There's a study out now that says one egg a day will cut down your chances of cardiovascular disease and dying of a stroke by something like 75%. That's enormous. But I grew up in a world where eggs were high in cholesterol. Are they or aren't they? Things keep changing, right? And you're wondering, like, did the lobbyists get to, to, did the lobbyists get to someone? But one egg a day can help cut down it. Like, whoa, there's too much to think about. So McDonald's is being sucked into the movement to ban plastic straws. And it's worthy of note. Starbucks has set aside $10 million to award grants to inventors in their quest for a compost, compostable coffee cup. Dunkin' Donuts is nixing plastic foam cups from its locations worldwide by 2020. Chipotle said it's going to cut waste from packaging and leftover food destined for landfills in half by 2020. Millennials want, millennials will get. More Americans are struggling to pay their credit cards. More late payments. Credit cards are easy to do late payments because it's not like the bank's going to come and take your materials away from you like they would of your house with late payments. Hawaii's volcano eruption is driving away millions in tourism dollars. That makes me want to go to Hawaii. But uh, so far, the closure just of Hawaii Volcanoes National Park has cost the island $166 million. And bookings are down anywhere between 40 and 60%, whether it be on cruise ships or for rooms on the island. A lot going on. Let's bring in CFP Chad Burton. He did the show this morning from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. here on AM 1220 KDOW. Let's get some financial planning insights from the king. So, for king? example, let's say you're making you're, – you're 25. You've got a great degree. You're in programming, something like that. You're making 70 grand a year. Per paycheck, you need to be saving $420 a month at age 25 so you can get to two times your salary by 35. So what does that assume? Basically, assumes you're going to get invested in stocks and that your stocks are going to grow at 7%. Now, that's not how things work. The market has averaged 10 to 11% over the last 100 years, but it's never straight up. It's not, you know, I mean, well, the last eight years has been, but... It's not typically how it works. It's usually, you know, seven out of 10 years are positive, three out of 10 are negative. But let's say you assume from 25 to 35, you're going to average 7% in stocks and you're going to save that amount of money, $420 a month. That basically equates to about 13 to 14% of your, your pay. Let's, let's just round it to 15%. So what do you save in? If you say, okay, I want to do this. I need to stay on track for retirement. So I know I need to pay myself first. Am I going to be financially successful? I know that 420 per paycheck is my target. So what would I do with that? If I was starting out at that number, and I wish I made 70000 right out of college. That would have been great back then. But in the Bay Area, you know, that's that, that might be the going rate. So let's talk about that. $70,000. And let's say you're in a 401k. First of all, Make sure you get into a company that has a 401k that has a match. And let's say you have a 4% match. And even if a company just has a minimum safe harbor plan, it's usually dollar for dollar for the first uh, you know, 2% and then 50 cents on the dollar after that, something like that. So basically, if you put in 6%, they're going to match 4%. Let's just round it to that. That's your, that's your first 10%. So that gets you close that you can say, if I put 6% into my 401k, I'll get a match of 4% of my pay. So essentially I'll have 10% of my pay going in. 
So if I'm going to do that starting out again, and I think taxes are very low right now, and I think taxes are going to go up in the future, I'm going to put my 6% deferral into the Roth 401k, and the employer match is going to go into the regular side of the 401k. So I'm building up both pre-tax and no, and total tax-free dollars. That's what I would do. But that only gets me to 10%. So I have 5% left over. And if I have 5% left over, I need to put $291 per month or equate that to paycheck, $145 per paycheck into a Roth IRA. So how do you do that? Go to, I don't care where you go, Vanguard, T. Rowe Price, uh, go to TD Ameritrade and open up a Roth IRA account, find a good ETF, exchange-traded fund. They have a whole bunch of commission-free funds. And you put your first $145 in there, you buy one of those ETFs, and then you call TD Ameritrade and say, I'm going to be sending $145 every two weeks into this account, so set up an automatic purchase of this ETF or fund for me. Or you can do that with a specific T. Rowe Price mutual fund or Vanguard mutual fund. Typically, though, in some of the Vanguard funds, you have to first save up your first $1,000 before you make that initial purchase and then sign up for at least 50 bucks a month. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.